Good morning. I'm going to confess to you something. I'm not the biggest person for singing. It doesn't really do much for me, but there is something about when we come together and we sing and we sing about the truth. I'm on, how does that song go? That, see, I'm not that good. On solid rock of Christ I stand. Um, throughout the whole week, we got all this stuff going on. Some of us are just bogged down by shame, by guilt. And then we come together and we just sing like, this is what we have. This is the truth. And it just kind of, I don't know, it just kind of settles. It settles us. I, I really enjoyed it. I'm not the biggest singer, but I really deeply enjoy us getting together and singing that. But good morning. So today we are going to continue looking at Galatians chapter 2. Uh, I hope you've been enjoying this as much as I have. I've been deeply enjoying it. Um, some passages are kind of hard to figure out, but they're really, I think, super good. Uh, and today we're going to talk about a topic I think every single one in here, maybe not the kids, but every single one in here can relate with, and that is to-do lists. To-do lists. Um, and that, depending on what stage of life you're in, that might be called something different. For some of us, it might be called school assignments or a school, a class syllabus. Uh, some of us, it might be called expectations and, and job requirements. Uh, for others, it might be just what needs to get done at home in order for life to continue, such as cooking, cleaning, such as that. And then most sig- significant of all, it might be called the honey to-do list. But we have to-do lists in our lives. And having these um, can be very helpful. They can help us with direction, what things we should do. It just kind of gives us an idea of things we need to get done. They can be very helpful. But they also can be a huge burden. They can constantly remind us what needs to be done, how much more to do. That that night we decided to take time to relax. We should have been doing this. We should have got this done. Time's running out. There's so much to do. Um, what you did get done, something went wrong. You have to redo it. We just checked off on the to-do list. It wasn't as done as best as you wish it was. And it's just this constant grind of pushing us down. Um, and then it's a horrible taskmaster where some of us, it might be uh, a very constantly driving in the form of a mean boss or in the form of a nagging spouse or in the sense of that, that class syllabus, the pushy teacher, or even high expectations we put on ourselves. And then we guilt and we shame ourselves thinking that will motivate us. But we have this to-do list that just kind of burdens us. And today, Paul talks about a very burdensome to-do list, and that's the Mosaic Law. It's the law that the Jews had to keep, um, things such that included such things as food regulations, ceremonial rituals, things that kept the Jews unique in their clothing and how they even farmed. There was unique laws they needed to keep right down to the last, the last dot, if you will. And on top of this was the moral law. You have to do this, you have to do this, and you can't do this. You shall not do this, you shall not do this. And they had this to-do list that you have to do this in order to be walking with God. And this is the to-do list that the false teachers, the Judaizers, that were attacking the churches in Galatia, were trying to throw on top of the Galatians. They were saying, you have to follow this. You have to get circumcised. You have to be eating according to these food regulations in order to then become a Christian and be saved from your sins. You have to be keeping this. And that's what's being pushed on the Galatians. And Paul talks about this. 
that this to-do list is just bringing the shame and the guilt. And all they hear is the shame and the guilt. And what is almost worst is they can't keep this law. They're being set up for failure. Set up for an agonizing, guilt-ridden, shame-filled failure. Like putting in so much work and realizing this is all in vain. So can you relate with this? Does it seem like your relationship with God is more like a to-do list? Is it more like a to-do list? And there seems to be this driving taskmaster reminding you that you're not matching up, that you're not doing enough, where your relationship with God is more about what you should have done, what you ought have done, and what you shouldn't have done, what you ought not have done, rather than the relationship. And so today... That's what we're going to talk about, and I, I'm, I'm confident this affects each of us to some degree. And I'm excited to share what is the most sweetest and most peace and restful truth that Paul lays out here. And that truth is justification by faith. And I know that's a technical word, um, but this is literally the foundation of our faith, literally the heart of the gospel. And so I think it's important that we use that technical work because it grasps so much of what the gospel is. And so jumping in it, so what what does it mean to be justified? And it gives us, that, that word gives us a picture, a scene. What many of us have seen in movies, TV shows, on the news, where you have a courtroom scene You've got the judge, you've got the, the defendant, you've got their lawyer, then you've got the people behind them all watching the sentencing and everything going on. The person in question is asked to stand. Everything's quiet. Everyone's holding their breath because they're looking at the judge, waiting for what they're going to say. And the judge proclaims that he finds the defendant not guilty. The defendant is justified. And so we get this picture with the word justified they're defined they're seen not guilty the law has no no claim on them and so this picture is one of a judge declaring an accused person not guilty but right before the law it's the exact opposite of being condemned or or sentenced as guilty what's the big deal so question what is why is it such a big deal is because we are guilty you're guilty I'm guilty, we're rightfully so declared guilty, declared condemned. And God is just. He is righteous. And we like that. Adolf Hitler, we hope he gets punished. We, we beg of God to punish him. All murderers, all rapists, all child molesters, we hope they get it. We hope they're punished. We want a just God. We want a righteous God. But he doesn't stop there. All sin is offensive to God. And it will not let that go unpunished because he is righteous. He is just. And so you and I deserve death. We've rebelled against the benevolent creator. We defied him. Our children deserve death because they've defied their creator. So that's where the gospel comes in. That's where the justification by faith comes in. The good news that we hear. There's nothing we can do because we are sinners. We are condemned. We are guilty. But there's a way. There's a way for the judge 
to declare sinners as righteous. And that sounds almost bad, almost offensive. Like he's kind of taking a bribe on the side or he's just a, a dirty judge. And he's not. In Romans 4, 5, God is referred to as him who justifies the ungodly. He who declares guilty sinners sinless. That's how God is referred to, him who justifies the ungodly. And again, he's not a compromised judge. He's completely just. He does not go against his character that he's righteous and he will punish sin. So then how does he both just and declare righteous, justify sinners? And the answer is Jesus Christ. The answer of Jesus. And we see that. Jesus came. He was born sinless, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, lived a sinless life. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He was completely righteous, completely innocent, but yet he was crucified. And on that cross, he took my sin, he took your sin, your unrighteousness, my unrighteousness upon him. And he was punished. He was pummeled on the cross because of our unrighteousness. And then he was raised from the dead and conquered death. And then he holds up this hope that if we believe and put our faith in him, we can be made right with God. We can be forgiven. We can be justified. And so there it is. God declaring guilty sinners sinless and righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. He took our unrighteousness and was punished on the cross for it. And in return, we take his righteousness, his perfect fulfillment of the law, and we're declared righteous justified in a letter in the second century ad so just decades after the new testament's written the writer referred to this jesus taken our unrighteousness we taken his righteousness as the sweet exchange the sweet exchange that jesus takes our unrighteousness that we should be punished for he gets punished for it and we take his righteousness and we, and this is the word that a lot of us hate, we are entitled to everything Jesus is. His inheritance, we're entitled to it because we're seen as completely righteous because of Christ's righteousness. Justification by faith. We're pardoned. We're forgiven. We are totally reconciled with God. All of God's wrath towards us is completely gone. We are not liable anymore. And then the second side as well, Bestowed on us is the title of a righteous man, one who's promised and entitled everything that a righteous man should have. That being said, Jesus' inheritance. We are partakers. And so justification by faith. God declaring the ungodly, declaring us sinners as righteous and sinless because of Christ and what in his righteousness. The sweet exchange. That's justification by faith. And that's the bedrock of our, of, our, of our walk with God, of what we believe, of the gospel. And that's what Paul gets at here today. Justification by faith alone. Um, some people in the past, Martin Luther, he said that this, this teaching, justification by faith, is what on which the church either stands or falls. Any church that goes away from this idea cannot even be called a Christian because this is the bedrock of our faith. 
And so we'll jump into that. But please pray, pray with me. Uh, Father, Lord, we are looking at the, the jewel of the gospel today. Help us, God. Help me to, to preach this faithfully. Help us, Lord, to, to faithfully believe this, God. Um, Lord, help us see this in light of the, the guilt and shame that's, that just gets laid on us, whether by ourselves, for the enemy of our souls, from others. Lord, help us to see our lives, our daily life today in light of this truth. And Father, we continue to pray for the kids who will receive these boxes in front of us. Uh, Lord, we continue to pray that you will use them mightily in making your love known and making the gospel known, Lord, so that they will also believe. Amen. All right, Galatians chapter 2. If you haven't yet, open up to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to read through it together. So we ended in verse 10 last time. If you remember, they had the Jerusalem Council. Um, Paul went to go with the, the apostles, and they were laying this out. And the apostles in Jerusalem agreed with Paul that it wasn't by works. It was by faith alone. They're, they don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to follow the Mosaic law. And then and the rest of the chapter, 11 through was it 21, continues this and just kind of heightens it. And in the beginning, we see the situation. So follow with me. Verse 11. But when Cephas, who is Peter, came to Antioch, I, being Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For I rebuild. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is probably the most concise and most clear passage on justification by faith in the New Testament. And so there's a lot in here. So let's get after it. So number one, what we see here, uh, we see this this confrontation between Paul and Peter, which is pretty intense. Um, We see here, kind of the the thing that we get from this is the absolute vital importance of justification by faith. So much so that Paul takes the step. He confronts Peter in front of them all. And so look at this. So verse 11, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This word uh, opposed, it's, it's like a for defensive measures, almost in a military sense. It's for defense. Paul stepped in 
and oppose Peter to defend the gospel, to defend justification by faith. He wasn't going in there just to show up Peter or anything like that. No, he came to defend this truth. And he says he opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He being Peter, not because Peter was condemned to hell or anything like that, but it's used in a way that he's guilty of sin. He's condemned because he's guilty of the sin. He knows the truth, but yet he stood condemned. And we see that why in verse 12. Paul goes on, for before certain men came from James, and the idea here is that we know that there's the circumcision party. Either they are A, Judaizers who are falsely claiming they're from James, or B, they are just Jewish Christians and they're coming. Either way, it doesn't make much difference. But the Jews, the Jewish people came. He was eating with the Gentiles, Paul says. Peter was eating with the Gentiles. And the language being used is that it was it was, a, it was a amount of time. It wasn't just one time. It wasn't just one occurrence. He's constantly eating them. He's probably going house to house, eating with the, the Gentiles. They're having the Lord's Supper with them. He's with them in the house, hanging out. So he's eating with the Gentiles. And then Paul says, but when they, being the men from James, the, the Jews, came, he drew back and separated himself. He drew back. Um, three other times this word is used. It refers to like shrinking back and almost in fear and shame. He shrinks back. In fact, in Hebrews, it refers to those who shrink back from fallen Christ. To shrink back. Peter drew back. In, 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 throughout history, in like that, that Greek time, it's referred, and again, another military term, it's referred to to when troops draw back from the enemy in order to secure shelter and safety. And so Peter felt like that's what he was doing. He drew back and then he separated from himself, it says. And that word means like a distinct separation. There was no, no question what's going on. It was a distinct separation. He separated himself. And we see the reason why, and this sounds bad, it sounds very bad, but it almost brings us comfort. If you look, it says, fearing the circumcision party. Because of fear of man, he shrunk back. I said almost comforted because we deal with the same thing. We fail the same way. And what's interesting here is that those coming from James, they're either the Judaizers, the false teachers, or they're just Jewish Christians. Either way, they have no authority from the Sanhedrin to imprison, to execute, or anything like that. The only thing that they can do is ridicule. That's the only thing they can do. That's the only power they have. And that alone is what causes Peter to draw back. And is that not what causes us to draw back? Just that ridicule, being seen less in the eyes of others. And so he draws back, he separates himself. And in verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. He was leading other people astray. And what's interesting is that at this time, most likely what's going on, Barnabas and Paul were co-pastors in Antioch. And so Peter, what he was doing, he was leading their pastor even astray. That's how wide influence this is. He was leading their pastor astray. Hypocrisy. 
that you can see that we're bringing up a few times, hypocrisy, because he knew the truth. It was Peter at that Jerusalem council that agreed, no, that's the food regulation, the Mosaic law, not necessarily for salvation. He agreed with that. It was actually in Acts 10 that Jesus gave Peter a vision three times, if you remember, of like the, the food coming down and Jesus saying, eat, giving this the point that like the Mosaic law is done, Gentiles can be, uh, are also involved in this. Three times the vision appears. This is Peter, the guy that received all this, and yet he was drawing back, drawing back, and separating himself. And then so verse 14, but when I, Paul, saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, so he saw this. Like again, it might have been gradual that maybe Peter was like, you know what? Uh, like, hey, he just kind of declines. I'm not going to go over to your house tonight. i got some of the stuff going on. But it becomes clear over time that he was drawing back from the Gentile believers and separating himself. And when Paul realized what was going on, he stepped in. And the reason why, he says, because their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Literally meaning they, they weren't walking uprightly or forward or even straight-footed. Their gait, if you will, was off. And immediately, I think of Casey, I think of horses. The gate was off. If they're walking weird, if the horses are walking weird, acting weird, there's something wrong. They're not walking straight-footed. And that actually is what happened with Casey's horse. Nothing too serious, but she was kind of running, walking weird. And there were some things going on with her feet where she needed to be shooed. And then things were being taken care of fine. But something needed to be done. Something needed to be stepped in. Or it can get seriously dangerous over time. And it's exactly what's going on here. Peter drew back. He separated himself from the Gentile believers. He was not walking straight-footed in step with the gospel. And if this continued, this was not good. And so Paul stepped in. He saw it and he stepped in because their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So he confronts Peter, the leading apostle in Jerusalem. He confronts him. Again, not because he's trying all high and lofty and just kind of showing up. Not all. He saw the danger of what Peter's doing. He stepped in. This also, if you tie it with the rest of his, the letter in the beginning, just upholds his apostleship and his gospel even more. That his gospel is authoritative. It's the same as Peter's, but Peter wasn't living according to that. And so Paul confronts him in front of everyone because this is happening in front of everyone. So the truth of justification by faith was so important that Paul confronted Peter. Peter, the leader in front of everyone because he was not living as if it were true. And then this sets up, like I said earlier, like the clearest teaching on justification by faith. And so looking at verses 14, the end of 14 through 16, um, I want to make two, two remarks here quick. If you remember last week, I said, um, I forgot what, within verses 3 through 5, Paul's, uh, his grammar was all over the place, cutting sentences off and going on. And the, the idea behind it is that he's, he's super angry. So he's just kind of, he's getting his grin his teeth because his friend Titus was getting forced to be circumcised, was getting thrown on there, was was being forced under the Mosaic law. And he's angry, so he's writing that, and his his writing shows that. That's the case here as well. 
that the grammar is a little weird. He cuts sentences off and go on. It may not come through in our English language, but in the original, it's all over the place. But the thing is, it's very clear what he's getting across. It's very clear. He might say it kind of weird or just kind of cut off, but it's very clear. Second point before we jump into this is that if you look in the passage, depending on what translation you have, they have quotes ending verse 14, right? If you look in your Bible right now, they might end at 14. And the thing is, in the manuscripts, they didn't have quotes. And so it's up for debate, not the biggest deal, if Paul, his quote to Peter was ended here or ended at verse 21. Does that make sense? So did, did Paul stop talking to Peter here and then he just comments on this to the Galatians or was this all being said to Peter? Either way, it doesn't really, make a ma- doesn't really matter because it's being said. Side note, you can also look at John 3.16. It's, it's the same thing. Where does what Jesus says end and where does John's commentary pick up? Not a big deal. Just wanted to let you know. But moving into this. 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, being Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So he's saying, Peter, you're a Jew. Most likely from those visions that you got from Jesus and then the Jerusalem Council, you don't, you don't live like a Jew. You don't eat how Jews are supposed to eat, the, the regulations. You don't follow all the clothing. You don't follow all this kind of stuff. You don't live like a Jew anymore. How can you then force this way of life, this Mosaic law, on the Gentiles, Peter? So Paul brings that up. How can you force them? And that's the same word used earlier in chapter 2 about Titus not being forced to be circumcised. And yet Peter was doing the exact same thing by what he was, how he was living to the Gentile believers. Verse 15, Peter, or, or I'm sorry, Paul continues, We ourselves, Peter and Paul, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Hey, we're Jews. And he says Gentile sinners. And I think this may have come up before. He's not saying that they're, um, we're above them. He's just saying that's how the, the Jews viewed the Gentiles. They were outside of the Old Covenant. They're outside of it, and they're therefore called, referred to sinners. So you're saying, hey, we're Jews by birth, Peter, me and you. He goes on, verse 16, yet, even though we are Jews, he says, yet, verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He says, yet we know, Peter, we're Jews. We know what it's like to follow these ceremonial, these dietary, these land, these clothing regulations and rituals. Peter, we know that. We've lived that life. Yet, he says, we know that does nothing for a relationship with God. In no way can we be justified, made right in God's eyes by these things. So then why are you burdening the Gentile believers with this? We know it doesn't do anything for us. Why would it do anything for them? He says they believe in Jesus in order to be justified, the purpose. They know the works of the law won't do anything. So they believe in Christ to be justified. By works of the law, it ends in verse 16, no one will be justified 
No amount of keeping the law, no amount of keeping the rules, doing good things, doing spiritual things, doing mighty things, no amount of them will make a person righteous in God's eyes. We are sinners and we are in need of a Savior. In Isaiah 64, Isaiah writes, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. He says, All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, and that word he refers to menstrual rags. Our righteous deeds, it's what they're like in front of God. That's how far apart unrighteous we are from Christ. But Paul is saying, but we believe in Christ to be justified. Three times in this verse, you see, three times in this verse alone, Paul says, we're not justified by works through the law, but only through faith. Three times. That goes for me, for you, for your kids, for our friends at school, for our friends at work. That's the only way. No amount of works of the law will justify someone. So what does faith mean? I want to to sit here just for a brief minute here. We looked at justification, being made right in God's eyes, being declared not guilty, and God's able to do this because he takes our unrighteousness, puts it on Christ, and we get Christ's righteousness. But it says we're justified by faith. And so what does faith mean? So it's the the instrumental means, it's the, the means by which Christ and his righteousness is appropriated, meaning it is the avenue, the means by which we receive Christ's righteousness. And I hope it doesn't seem like I'm splitting hairs. Follow with me. It does not mean that we're saved because of our faith, as if our faith is the grounds of our justification. This is what I mean by that. As if our faith itself is what justifies us and it's not it's god it's christ's righteousness that justifies us and it is by faith that we receive that does that make sense um we are deemed righteous because the law of god has been satisfied by christ and receive this righteousness through faith so if we think that we are deemed righteous or justified just because of faith and not because his righteous law god's standard which is in accord with this character, is satisfied, then somehow God is above his own law. And by that I mean this. If we are saved by just our faith, and that's the grounds that we have faith, that's it, that's why we're saved, then we're making faith a work, something to work up of. But faith is the avenue we receive Christ's righteousness, and that's why we're justified. I hope that, again, I'm not splitting hairs because it's literally the difference between righteousness through a work and righteousness received through faith. It's the difference between God justly declaring sinners sinless and God unjustly overlooking our sin and his character. Uh, my senior year in high school, I remember uh, there was uh, a buddy of mine, Brett, good friend of mine, that, and this was because I, I got, I came to Christ, first trusted Christ, my beginning of my, my my senior year, and this was in spring or even the summer of, I don't remember what what time of the year it was, but I remember 
I brought my friend Brett to youth group, was coming home, driving the same car, and we sat in my driving, my driveway, my parents' driveway for a while. And I remember him just kind of frustrated because he's heard the gospel different times. And he was just kind of like, I remember him like with almost tears in his eyes. He was kept on asking me, Alex, how do I believe? How can I do this? How can I do this? How can I have that faith? What, how can I do this? He, and from other talks, he was seeing faith as just another thing to do. It was just another work that he had to do on himself in order to be saved. And that's the exact opposite. Where faith is not hands grasping at things that we have to do or trying to figure out what the right thing to do. Rather, faith is the outstretched, empty hand that receives righteousness from Christ. It is not a work that we do. It's the avenue that we receive Christ's righteousness. So we are justified by faith in the same sense, or in the sense that we are justified through faith as we receive Christ's righteousness through faith and Jesus receives our unrighteousness and God can then justly declare us righteous. So therefore, this act of faith does not save us. It's what we receive through faith that saves us. Faith is not an act. It's the reception, if you will, of Christ's righteousness. Again, I don't want to make it seem like I'm dividing, like splitting hairs here because it literally is the difference between God being just and declaring us righteous or God being unjust and declaring us righteous. If it was just by our faith, he's overlooking all the sin we've ever done. If it's because of Christ's righteousness we receive through faith, he, he declares us righteous because we have Christ's righteousness. And the last question with that is, so what is faith? This, this vehicle of gaining Christ's righteousness, what is it? And Hebrews 11.1 1 is like the definition of faith. The writer says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, strong confidence in things hoped for. And what is hope for, or what are we to be confident in? And that's the one we're hoping for, that the one who can receive justification and righteousness and forgiveness through faith in Christ, death and resurrection, and thus trusting him in him alone. That promise of righteousness, that promise of being made right with God, that promise that we can be forgiven for all those things that we're ashamed of, that we've done, that we do today, and that we know there's a good chance we'll do it tomorrow. He says we can be forgiven. And our hope is in that. It's not an intellectual assent. It's just not like, yep, yep, I approve of that. It's not that. It's more personal and relational because it's literally entrusting our lives, our eternal lives to someone. It is putting your trust in the promises of someone as well as their integrity and faithfulness. It is not just intellectual. It's this deep commitment. Um, listen to, uh, this is a quote from John Calvin. He's kind of wordy, but I think he does a good job. And he says this, of what faith means. He says, he alone is a true, truly a believer who, convinced by a firm conviction that God is a kindly and well-disposed father toward him, promises himself all things on the basis of his generosity. So we are confident of this. And he says, who, relying upon the promises of divine benevolence toward him, that confidence that we can 
gain this justification that we can't on ourselves through faith, he says, then that person lays hold on an undoubted expectation of salvation. An undoubted expectation of salvation, confidence in things hoped for. So justification by faith is fundamentally opposed to any degree of works of the law. Fundamentally opposed. Let me make two quick clarifications, if you will. Number one, because of this, justification is forensic and not transformational. Let me let me describe that. By forensic, I mean it's it's declared righteous. That the emphasis on we're declared righteous. It is not transformative. Transformative. There we go. Meaning justification does not mean that we are being made righteous before God. And I mean this. You might be like, hey, obviously we're being made into the image of Christ. Exactly. But that has no meaning or no influence on our justification by faith. Meaning this. Our transforming into Christ and our failing at that many times, our Status before a God that has no effect on. I'm smiling because that didn't even make sense to me. I'm trying to word it well. Give me a second here. Our right standing before God is not dependent on how well we're transformed. That no doubt is sanctification, but that does not affect our our who we are in front of God. Does that make sense? Uh, let me do it this way. It's the difference between what we believe, and not to push anyone down, but what the Roman Catholics believe. We believe that Christ's righteousness is imputed on us and God can declare us righteous. If you look in the Roman Catholic actual beliefs, they believe in infused righteousness. Imputed versus infused. Infused in the sense that they, they, they're, they're right, like God's righteousness kind of enables them to live out to be to live that righteousness out, and their justification is based on how well they do that. Does that make sense? It infuses them, empowers them, and they have to live that out to a certain degree. What the gospel says that it's imputed, it's put it on us. It is in no way dependent on how we live it out. It is in no way dependent on how well we're transformed. It's just we receive his Christ, his righteousness, and we're declared not guilty. We're declared right with him. That's the difference. Yes, we will be transformed. God will be making us more like Christ. No question. But that has absolutely no influence on how God views us. Does that make sense? I know. AJ doesn't like it when I ask that question. I asked. <laughs> um, so yes, here we go. Okay. So justification comes wholly through faith and not to any degree of through works. And this can be incredibly difficult for us because our natural disposition is towards works. We want to do this. We think that we can earn God's favor, earn God's grace by doing certain things. John Calvin, he says this, that there's the only way we can ever come to this point is that we have to have a right understanding of our sin. We will never have this confidence unless we become deeply distrustful of ourselves. There's no way we'll come to this faith unless we give up on ourselves. 
Because if we are still kind of betting on ourselves, still confident in ourselves, we're, we're hoping on, we're banking on works of the law. Um, very short parable. Jesus tells this parable, of, and which, may, like, uh, which you may know, of the Pharisee and the, the tax collector um, in a temple. Jesus says this. He says, two men went up into a temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. The Pharisee's praying this in the temple. God, I'm thankful I'm not like that guy. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes on all I get. And then the other guy that's in the temple, it says, the, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We will never have that faith unless we come to the end of ourselves. That there's nothing we can do. Like the, like the tax collector says, God, Lord, have mercy. I'm a sinner. So justification by faith is only possible when we come to the end and we see that the work of the law cannot bring righteousness because we are so unrighteous. Here we go. Number three. So we just saw the, vi- the vital importance of justification by faith with Paul confronting Peter that we are justified by faith alone and not by works. And now this second to last point, your relationship with God right now being defined by the law is done. Your relationship with God is now defined by your faith. So your relation to God is not defined by the law, but it's defined by faith. And look at this with me. Verse 17. And this was a little hard to understand, so follow with me. It says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? So he's saying this. And so remember the accusations from the false teachers. Remember that the false teachers were saying you have to keep the Mosaic law in order to be a Christian, in order to be saved. That's what they're saying. That's what they're accusing. One of their accusations, which we'll see Paul later in Galatians really hammer, is that, hey, if you tell them that it's only by faith they are saved and they don't have to keep these laws in order to be saved, in order to be forgiven, they'll go nuts. Right? They'll live like crazy people and just sin all they want because it's only by faith alone and not by keeping the law. That's what they're accusing Paul of. And then Paul hits that here a little bit. He says, verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, he's saying, if in our endeavor to be justified by faith alone in Christ, he says, we too are found to be sinners, which they are, we still sin. He says, is Christ then a servant of sin? He says, and you, it depends on your translation, certainly not. And this is one of the most emphatic things could be said, like, um, absolutely not, not, may it never be. He says, may it never be. Then is Christ a servant of sin? May it never be. So why is this here? Uh, why is this being said? Again, the accusation against Paul's gospels. Hey, if you tell them it's just justification by faith alone, they'll go nuts and they'll, they won't even do anything. They'll just sin all they want because they don't need to keep the law to be saved. And that could be a fear a lot of ourselves. If you ever fear that yourself, like if I don't, if I don't read my Bible every morning, 
if I don't do this, 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 I think I'm just going to, like, I'm just going to go way off board. Not that those things are wrong, but when we add that as if we need to do this in order to be right with God, that is not the gospel. So Paul is saying, if we seek justification through faith in Christ, and we are still sinning, which they are, which we are, that does not mean Christ is a servant of sin. He says, that's crazy. He says, that may it never be. That's certainly not. This freedom from the law, and he gets into this in Romans, really. He says, um, the freedom from the law does not mean people will be running crazy. In Romans 6, 2, Paul says, how can we who died of sin still live in it? How can we do that? The Holy Spirit within us will be convicting and changing us. And Paul gets at that later in chapter 5. Um, but he hits it here. Because that's an accusation. So he says, that is nonsense that Jesus would be blamed for our sin. Follow with me. Verse 18. So he says, For if I rebuild up what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So this is what he's being, what's being said here. So he's being accused or he's being attacked for justification by faith alone. They're saying you have to keep the Mosaic law. You have to do this, the food regulations. You've got to be circumcised. So he says this, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Not only is it crazy that if he sins, that Jesus is at fault, but Paul is saying that the true sinner is the one who tries to return back to the law to find righteousness. That's the real transgressor. If you try to build up what has been torn down by Christ's death and resurrection, that's the transgressor. Thinking you can go and get righteousness by doing works? That is what transgression is, he's saying. Restoring the law as the basis of one's relationship with God, which we're so prone to, would indict them as sinners. For salvation is not through the law. It's never been through the law. But it's through Christ. Christ is not the transgressor by freeing us from the law, but the one who is trying to put the law on others is the transgressor. Verse 19, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. So Paul explains why he cannot build the law. He says, because I died to the law. He died to the law. And he hits this a little more in verse 20. But he talks about through our faith in Christ, we have a spiritual union with Christ. We have a spiritual union with Jesus. Jesus lived on the law, kept it perfectly. He was completely sinless. And because of our union with him, we receive his righteousness. And like Christ, we died to the law because Jesus died under the law, taking our sin on him, and thus ended the heir of the law. We died with Christ. That's how Paul can say that he died to the law. Because Christ did. He, he kept the law. He did it completely. And he died. He took our punishment for it. We died with him. Because of our faith, we have union with Christ in that. Um, for example, if a man, uh, this is hypothetical. If a man, let's say, he did something and he, he's convicted of a capital crime and put to death, right? The law no more has claim on him. He has paid the penalty. So if he was to rise from the dead, he'd be, he'd be not guilty. He's already paid the punishment for his crime. And so that's exact with us. We're free from any claim of the law because of the punishment of the law, Jesus died already. It's already been taken care of. We are unified with him in our faith 
And so we've died through the law. The law has no more claim on us. And then Paul says, he died to the law so that I might live to God. The purpose of dying to the law was to live to God, a relationship. And he builds on this in verse 20. Follow with me. We're coming to the end. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. And so kind of a big picture. How, how do you go from the law defining everything, being circumcision, what you can and cannot eat, what you can and cannot do, what you can and cannot wear, how much you can farm, when can you farm, what kind of can you farm, what kind of clothing stuff can you all this kind of stuff. How can you go from that? All the ceremonies, rituals, all the requirements, and now go from just living to God. He says, because I was crucified with Christ. And again, this union with Christ. And the way the word is, is that it happened in the past, but it has continuing effects today. Our faith in Christ, we're unified with Christ. It happened. And it's having effects today because we're no longer required to follow the law. The law has no claim on us. In the spirit of Christ, he says, um, I'm sorry, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Our old self has been crucified, and now the Holy Spirit lives in us, empowers us, comforting us, always with us. He says, the life I live now, what we live today, he says, I live by faith. No longer is our relationship with God characterized by works, by doing things for God, for the law, but it's characterized by faith. By believing in him. And Paul continues in verse 20. And this is actually kind of unique. He says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that might not seem too unique, but the context, almost everywhere in the New Testament, when it refers to like Jesus giving himself, John 3.16, Loving, it's always plural because we are a body. He did it for, for all of us. But Paul makes it radically individualized to him, very personally. He says, but he loved me, which he always makes it very plural because it's us, the body. But at this point, he makes it very personal for us and then for you because Christ loved me, because, because Christ loved you, he gave himself up for you as an individual, as me, as an individual. Jesus loves you and gave himself up for you. So we see Paul's connection here between faith, our relationship with God, and love that's motivated by God's love. Our faith in Christ can be sustained only where one is confident in God's love. We see that connection here. So your relationship with the law is done. Your relationship with God being defined by the law is done, he says. Rather, you've died to the law. And so your relationship with God is not defined by that to-do list that you think you need to keep or the one that's placed on you, that you place in yourselves. The to-do list, the law is no longer your master. And he goes on this anymore in chapter 3. It's not only this list of things to not do, like don't kill, don't steal, but it's also this to-do list of you've got to study your Bible. You've got to be a good father. You have to be a supportive wife. And none of this stuff is bad. But in relation to how God views us, it has nothing to do with us because Christ's righteousness is on us. It does not influence God's view of us. So our relationship with God is not defined by the law, but by our faith, 
Last point, super short and kind of just summarizing what Paul is saying. Verse 21, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Sometimes I like to listen to different interviews and podcasts of, of guys in the military from the past. And I remember this one specific one where this guy's uh, they're sharing, and the, the interviewer asked the question, like, where does this drive to do so much, where does this strength and motivation come from? Because he, he's known for doing a lot of stuff. And the guy being interviewed, the former military man, he kind of just pauses and he says, every morning I wake up and I think about the men who died to save me. I think about the men who put their lives at stake for me. And he says, those men died for a reason and I want to make the best of it, is what he said. If we as Christians think we can earn God's favor, that we can earn his grace by things we do, they were not saying that about Jesus. He didn't die for any reason. It was a complete waste. He went through all that for nothing. God sacrificed his own son for absolutely nothing if we could be righteous through the law, if there was any other way. So justification by faith alone, not by works. You're made right with God. You have peace with God for all eternity, no matter what you do. Your relationship is not defined by how far you get on your to-do list. It's defined by what Jesus already did on his to-do list, which was absolutely perfect. And we get that from him. There's an emphasis with justification on being declared righteous. And I just want to make it like very specific or very um, blatant. Because we both know, you and I know, that we still sin. We, every day, we are not. Ask your spouse, ask your sister or brother, you still sin. But it's being justified, being declared righteous. Yes, we still sin. One day we won't when we're in heaven with Christ, but we still sin. But that does not influence God's view of us because when God sees us, he sees Christ's perfect righteousness. And we're declared righteous and perfect. Martin Luther, I brought this quote up before. He says that he preaches justification by faith every week because his people forget justification by faith every week. He says the article of justification must be sounded in our ears incessantly because the frailty of our flesh will not permit us to take hold of it perfectly and to believe it with all our heart. I feel like it's like a, uh, a paradigm, if you will, or a spectrum where either A, we, we are just burdened with our guilt and our shame and we're forgetting that that's all done with, that God no longer views us that way, but he views us in Christ's righteousness. Or B, on the other end, we're just so confident in our, ourselves that we feel no need of it. We still have some confidence in our righteousness. And I feel like it's so hard to get to grasp justification by faith because we're struggling with both. Our pride and then our doubt and almost unbelief. But we can preach to ourselves each day that right now, as Christians, as believers, we are absolutely right with God. Nothing can mess that up. Nothing. You doing something won't mess it up. You not doing something will not mess that up. Because it was never dependent on us, but on Christ's righteousness, which we received through faith. 
So your relationship with God is not defined by your to-do list, but defined by Christ's ability to already have kept God's to-do list. Father, thank you, God, for this lofty truth. Um, Lord, help us, God, to to go through this, God, how, how simple it is, but how deep it is, the depth of this truth. Lord, we are right with you because of Christ. Help us, God, to grasp that. When we are being just beaten by condemnation from the enemy of our soul, when we are just overwhelmed with guilt and it's affecting how we relate with others, Lord, help us to, to just be overwhelmed by the truth that that is no more, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, that we are free, Lord. Help us, God, not to to come to you through a, a prism of doing this and doing that because our relationship is not defined by the law but by faith, by Christ's righteousness. And Lord, please apply to our hearts what Paul says, that you loved me and you died for me. You love each person here. You died for each person. You gave himself. You gave yourself up for him. Lord, help us, God. Amen.